Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to chew over recent events. I suppose there's only one place to start and that's with the EU referendum debate. What do we think of it so far? Oh, there's, this, there's a long pause because I think that we can only begin to see the real problems in relation to the way this debate is being conducted. That is that despite everything, and I desperately want it to change, it has not yet started as a proper political debate or it's only beginning to crank into gear. I was glad to see today that um, the International Women's Day, we might as well say, that there's kind of women for Brexit or some such uh, uh, campaign started. And, you know, some of the women who are for Brexit come out and I then listen to the interviews and I think, oh God, this is hopelessly, you know, why would women want Brexit? And then there's a kind of conversation about that and the next minute, the same old, same old. So you do think, oh, nothing new there then. Right, so to be serious about it, I think that one of the dangers is that although the accusation of project fear is now bandied around with such regularity that you know that it's become a meaningless phrase it is on the other hand really distressing that one of the key features of this debate is incessantly going to be if we stay in this awful thing will happen if we leave this awful thing will happen often in relation to terrorism often in relation to immigration or in relation to the economy And in the midst of that, then, it's very difficult to make the positive cases for democracy. I've also found in debates with uh, people around this issue that when I talk about democracy, there's a sort of tired yawn. And you realise just how fragile our relationship with democracy is, with people variously saying things like, well, it's all very well saying that. And of course, I believe in democracy. But the problem is you know, we wouldn't have all of these wonderful civil liberties protections if we left it up to the people. And increasingly you get people saying things which are explicitly and unapologetically anti-democratic. One of the things that has also characterised the debate in relation to particularly the Remain people, and I've just had a discussion with someone actually along these lines, is When you see who's on the Brexit side, you wouldn't want to be associated with them. And I wrote a a blog piece for the Times Educational Supplement along the lines of, uh, well, you've got all these complete right-wing xenophobes on the one hand, populists, great accusation, because obviously that might mean you're popular with someone, um, and then the ignorant, great unwashed, or, you know, this idea that educated, enlightened, open-minded people are for remain... Brexiters are little Englanders, closed-minded, uneducated. And I think that there is a a huge degree of snobbery involved in that attitude, Uh, a real contempt for the masses of ordinary people, which is one of the reasons I'm actually for Brexit, because I think the EU shows nothing but contempt for popular sovereignty and the demos. But also real prejudice about what being educated might mean. I mean, I want people to be educated. But this idea that you can't be a Democrat unless you've got a certain number of A-levels is utterly ludicrous. I mean, the idea that you're kind of more open-minded if you go to university these days, when you look at what's happening on university campuses, which does not indicate an open-minded critical attitude to ideas at all, uh, is just a prejudice. But it's a prejudice which I'm afraid has got some sway, particularly amongst a lot of people... You work in education, liberal circles, people that you would want to 
see this as an opportunity to have a proper discussion about a free society, a democratic society and what sovereignty means, or actually proving to be rather close-minded about entering into those kind of debates. Yeah, it's really striking that it's election being fought by, I guess, a kind of whole generation of political figures who have never really confronted a big election, never really kind of confronted the kind of real kind of risk of populist sovereignty doing what you don't want it to do. I mean, that's always been very striking about the European project of that, you know, it very much wanted the democratic mandate um, when it had the European constitution. That was the idea of it. Actually, we had to sort of try and get past this point where Europe was just this big, bad, honourable beast and really demonstrate that there was a proper European demos. And then obviously they put it to vote in kind of on home turf in, in Holland and uh, France and they and they lost you know those votes and therefore we had the whole kind of political maneuvering around the Lisbon Treaty um, and it's kind of really striking that you know there is a sort of there's not any clear idea of how you go and organise a, a, a discussion you can sort of see that in the fact that people are very much focusing around uh, the campaigns at the moment which is always a really good sign that kind of political communication is is failing because they haven't got a strong message that they can really sell on either side and so what's interesting you're sort of seeing more of the kind of mechanics at work so you know there's both kind of John Longworth from the British Chamber of Commerce who admittedly you know did go against his organisation's agreed sort of line of neutrality Um, but at the same time that kind of insistence on this kind of sort of faux neutrality is a kind of shows a sort of a, a lack of belief in the importance of having a genuine political discussion the idea that sort of business and all of these organizations have to stay out of this discussion i don't think it's very well placed they of course have an opinion on the matter they should be able to tell us what it is and we should be grown up enough as a populace to be able to to judge that accordingly um, as long as we can engineer the facts and at the same time there's you know around boris johnson there have been various accusations that there's attempts to kind of make sure that people aren't going against his party line from within city hall um, although that you know that's they say that they were misinterpreted um, but you can sort of see that there's this obsession with trying to maintain party lines on this issue um, without anyone really having a strong belief in what those lines are about and what they should be. So that means they just sort of focus on trying to control everything. And it means that we're sort of staggering into this kind of referendum without any kind of clear idea of what either side is really proposing. Um, and I think that's quite bad, but it's very revealing about the kind of mechanism of European politics that really does try to always circumvent um, attempts to have to go out and and fight for something that you believe for to take a kind of popular will around it and it's a kind of reminder of what's really at stake in this referendum because you know if it is a kind of vote remain then um, you know this will be a kind of emboldening of that kind of strategy and if it's vote leave there's going to be all kinds of chaos because some of the people who are advocating vote leave are just saying we'll be able to vote again um, which isn't necessarily true and you know without a kind of clear conception of what a modern Britain outside of the EU will look like um, so I think it's going to be a very tough time ahead on either side but you know as always exciting because there's a real political choice here it, it, that's uh, that's the one thing that sort of re- really strikes you is that whereas with a general election you kind of th- there's a big blocks of people who are kind of know what they're going to do all the time and they don't really have to consider it too carefully and it's just just these swing voters who kind of go by the mood of the moment i suppose or like think about what's going on in the in the campaign but this one is we have a really quite complicated issue to deal with and 
you know, the, the old sort of, uh, you know, I hate them, so I'm going to vote the opposite way thing doesn't really work anymore. Just like, you know, I, think, I think it was Tim Jones in The Guardian did this piece the other day saying, you know, I don't know which dickhead to vote against, really. And uh, I think that, that, that there's quite a lot of truth to that. I and mean, when, when I've had conversations with people, it is like, I don't know what to do, but I don't like Nigel Farage. And it's like, well, you have to think a bit more than that because you don't have to be you know, of the right um, or UKIP supporters think that the EU is a bad idea. So I think it's interesting that a few sort of nibbles of a kind of left-wing Brexit attitude are are, are starting to emerge. So there was a former Lib Dem MP who came out today and wrote in the Independent about why he's voting for Brexit. And, you know, know, while I'm not the greatest fan of Tony Benn, you know, those two questions that keep going around now, which is like, you know, whenever you're dealing with authorities, you know, who you're accountable to and how do I kick you out are extremely uh, relevant to uh, this discussion. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things just to respond. Um, I think that one of the the exciting things, if you're pro-Brexit, is at least that there's been an attempt by the various different campaigns, despite their... uh, their ridiculously destructive infighting to actually go out and win the argument. So when you see stalls on the streets, it actually is one of the various Brexit groups. And I think that that does fill me with some hope, if you know what I mean, because there's an attempt to really try and win some arguments there and not just kind of stand at whose side are you on, but actually trying to convince people. And I think that as somebody who's for Brexit myself, I think I've got to get much better at the arguments. I mean, I, I think, oh you know, this is something I need to practice in, but it's almost difficult to find anywhere to practice, if you know what I mean, but that's what one needs to do because, as everyone has indicated, this isn't a simple matter. You know, you can't just go, are you for or against democracy? I mean, that's too simple. There's lots to consider, and we have to take that seriously. One thing that I have noticed, though, is with so many people being undecided, and I think there genuinely is millions and millions of people who want to take this seriously and understand it's important. And then we'll say, and they're not being unreasonable, but I just want somebody to explain to me what would happen if we're in, what would happen if we're out. Somebody tell me. But the way that people explain it is they say, I just want facts. I don't want anything but facts. But actually, that really misses the point. And I don't think it can just be reduced to a factual matter or a technical matter. But what I do think, so what I think we have to explain to people is, no, what you want is analysis and, and and to try and give people different ways of viewing this question, but more clearly than is presently being given. I think the point about the more people who come out on different sides from different political parties, the more that people will realise, oh, this is a different kind of issue that I can't just fall back on lazy caricatures is very, very important. I I, you know, I have to note that my colleague uh, Giles Fraser from the Moral Maze, who I know has had a hard time because, as a lefty, wrote a piece that he was uh, for Brexit, but is pro-European and pro-immigration. And regardless of what one thinks of the arguments that he used, you know, a lot of people have tried to say to him, "Oh, you can't be left-wing and for that," and he's stuck to his guns. But I know he's come under a huge amount of pressure. But I think what we've got to do is to give people space to think, oh, well, I'm quite a liberal, cosmopolitan, forward-thinking person, but I'm a bit nervous about the EU. And I think we've got to ensure, and, you know, one thing the Institute of Ideas can do is to say, let's mix it up a bit. I mean, I'm not going to be abusive to those people who are going to want to stay in and remain. I mean, that's not a helpful political way. I don't want to caricature them. I'll caricature the EU bureaucrats, but the people who are voting yes, it's a legitimate political position. But I think we've also got to create the space 
around the arguments to, to leave, that can be seen as not just narrowly, uh, as it were, around the kind of uh, Little Englander position, um, of which some people are Little Englanders, by the way, and that's a perfectly legitimate position as well. I just one I, I disagree with. Um, just just one one other thing, I suppose. Um, I on the John, uh, what's his name, John Longworth. Um, it's quite interesting about that because I thought that, you know, on the one hand, I thought that he probably was under put un, under pressure to resign. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the uh, Brexit people are right on that. That's what's happened. But I do think there's a danger of, of, of kind of being overly conspiratorial about Number 10's interventions. I, I think that Number 10 are behaving incredibly da- stupidly, actually, and tactically, ineptly. And I think that they are trying to control and massage things and so on and so forth. But who cares? I mean, you can't whinge about that. I think that what... Uh, is frustrating is that the media have really got to shake themselves up and move away from this attempt at playing Westminster politics with this. So I watched the Andrew Marr-Boris interview. Boris did not do well, uh, it has to be said. But Andrew Marr's constant interventions were to say things like, well, how will you get on with David Cameron after this? Is this a leadership bid? What You thought, well, this is... This is a big issue, right? We're not interested. This is not like your usual thing where you're trying to stir it up and create another headline for the Today programme tomorrow where you say Boris has said this about and turn it into a leadership campaign. Even the people who are trying to say, oh, you know, there's splits in the Labour Party. It's not about splits in the Labour Party. There are different views in the Labour Party. And I think that those members of the journalistic Westminster bubble and those people who are too closely involved in both sides of the campaign are in danger of killing this uh, in terms of a, a serious political discussion if they only see the consequences as that which will occur to the different political parties post it. In preference to, this is about the country, but really not about, like, Britain, I don't care. It's about us. It's about us, the voters, how we view ourselves, how we consider our destiny, who's in control of our destiny. Big stuff, this. Not Andrew Marr messing around on the couch with Boris, trying to get him to put his foot in it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there was two, two other things came up for me. Uh, one was uh, this thing about you know having this argument that we have to have a kind of a blueprint what, for what will happen um, after the referendum, because I just don't think that that's possible or indeed particularly desirable. Uh, you know, we don't know what our relationships are going to be with the remaining EU members if we decide to leave, and there are all sorts of different alternatives, and they need to be worked through properly. And that's probably not the best thing to try to do in the middle of a campaign. Um, but we can say with some certainty that um, we're going to still be doing a lot of trade with the with uh, the EU. We're still going to be cooperating with the EU on all this security stuff and uh, policing stuff and lots of on lots of other issues. But we won't be doing it within the bureaucratic framework of the European Union. Um, so the idea that you know the world's going to fall apart, um, you know, if we if we vote vote to leave the EU, just seems to be absolutely remarkable. And and the uh, sort of the logical you know, step from that is this idea that which the remain people seem to be doing in spades uh, is is this idea that you know it's a leap in the dark and poor old plucky little britain will be out on its own uh, and incapable of of surviving in the world um without the you know, the support of the european union now i know that the the world is generally drifting towards sort of regional blocks of things you know whether it's you know, asia or you know 
the Trans-Pacific Partnership and you know, America being involved just about everywhere. But the idea that you know that we we are incapable of negotiating our way in the world, you know, outside of some kind of structure, just seems to me to be really really bizarre. And actually, is you know, so it's it's one, it's talking down the UK as a country, and two, it's just like you know, talking down the ability of the individuals within the UK to sort of you know make any kind of difference to the world. Yeah, and also it, it lets the kind of European Union of the hook for what it is that's what's really striking about this um campaign because there is a sort of there is a, a perception that there is this kind of the populist tidal wave that there is some kind of conspiracy to get britain out of the european union and it is always you know the discussions have always been along the lines until quite recently that you know it's almost poor little european union that can't do anything to defend itself and i think that point really has to be made on the remain case that you know that this is you know a a, a coming together of you know some of the most powerful governments um in the world with their express backing to do so to create an enormous political project um, which you know when you factor in the history of of europe involves a kind of enormous kind of ambition and they do not have a line to sell themselves on they do not have something they can rally around and they have an enormous budget which is drafts any all-powerful corporation to come out there and make their arguments and the fact is nobody has anything there that is the sort of what happens when you actually have a project which is not based around trying to create any kind of mass democratic movement so i think you know it has to be said that the you know the remain case is made much harder but it's made much harder because of what it is they are actually advocating for and that's what is you know really striking all the european union seems to be able to provide at the moment is is fear-mongering about what will happen to us if we leave which by the way doesn't isn't the most attractive proposition for the benefits of cooperation and mutual working within Europe that as soon as we disagree with anyone then we will be punished and we will be beaten and we will be hounded into the ground but if we stay on board everything will be fine I think that really needs to be pulled out into the light for what it is. One of the interesting things this morning in relation to the discussion about women for Brexit was when I don't know the name of the spokeswoman who was uh, on the Today programme but the interviewer said well, you know, it's all very well you saying this, but, you know, the EU has brought in all of the equal pay legislation and all of the equal uh, equality legislation. And if it wasn't for the EU, this wouldn't exist. The absolute arrogance, but also the idiocy, this idea that women are not able or, in fact, should be beholden to the EU for equality is preposterous. But it made me realise that actually the interviewer thought that that she actually believed that anything progressive would come from the EU. Now, as it happens, I'm not opposed to the EU because I don't agree with their policies or I do agree with their policies. That's not really the point. The point is we should decide the policies ourselves. But it's also this idea that oh, we, we would never be able to have thought of equality for women if we weren't in the EU, which is so insulting to people. And on that kind of beholden note, which I, I think that, Dave, you've just referred to, is also there's been quite a big push at the moment to suggest that all international uh, scientific research will collapse 
uh, well, if Brexit occurs, because every British scientist somehow won't be able to have an international relationship with any other scientist once you're not in the EU. So the very nature of collaboration um, across continents, across borders of science, which, by the way, does not stop at the European border. And if it does, we'd be daft, because the idea that we're not doing collaborative work with India, with Korea, with China, with some of the great science nations at the moment would be ludicrous. The sort of presumption is, is that, oh, well, no, well, how will how will scientific research happen? Then the argument is put, interestingly, well, the EU funds a lot of this. And then you think, so effectively then, you really are admitting that you think that uh, the significance of the European Union is that it's a cash cow for science. Now, if I were to say, well, you know, um, you know, uh, the, a, a massive corporate has bought you and owned you and it gives you the money, so shut up and put up, you know, most scientists would be outraged that they had been bought off in that way. I cannot see why um, scientific research uh, should be blackmailed effectively by funders to be told that there won't be any, and it's the same thing with the arts, if you pull out, you won't get our grants. And it makes you think that those grants are probably not disinterested, if that's the case, because I would have thought that they, the European Union would have wanted scientific breakthroughs to occur, whether you're in the EU or not. And then a slight pause to just mention what's happening with Turkey and uh, what's happening with Greece, because this is where we might remind ourselves of a very uh, visceral EU practical, you know, day-by-day moment that's going on. So the EU have decided um, that um, the people who end up in Lesbos and in Greece, um, uh, you know, that's problematic, the the refugees that are turning up. So they are going to send them back. Um, So this is Angela Merkel and the EU want everybody to go back from... They want to end the Balkans route, effectively. So you send them back to Turkey. So in the course of all this conversation about, you know, Andrew Merkel having a discussion about what's going on in Greece in the middle of it all, then there's a big negotiation. Well, then what we'll have to do is we now have to negotiate with Turkey. And what we're going to do is we're going to use the fact that Turkey wants to join the EU to have a a, a row, or not a row, a, a negotiation about whether we'll lower the bar for Turkey joining the EU if you take the, the, the immigrants and so on and so forth, right? Turkey, Turkey, that's just closed down its liberal newspaper, by the way, as we might have noticed, you know, press freedom and all that. But anyway, nonetheless, this goes on. And the whole discussion is talking about nations and nation states as though they're kind of like your, you know, your Lego set, you know, what, who you can move around, uh, who you can tell, who you negotiate on behalf of. And I think that it's just a very vivid example of what no sovereignty means and being just sort of waiting for the EU bureaucrat to decide your fate in relation to the migration uh, uh, policy and also the migrants themselves being pushed and shoved around the place in the midst of this as though they're parts of the Lego set. It's incredibly distasteful. It indicates they might be not as benign as they present themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that that point about scientific cooperation just made me think about, you know, the idea that if we leave the EU, then all communication between, you know, British scientists and the rest of the world will will now be scrambled so that we can't communicate with anybody. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, as you say, you're co- cooperating with 
career in Japan and whatever. And you know, the fact that CERN is in Switzerland, um, that's quite a biggie, isn't it? And the fact that you know, uh, Swiss, Switzerland are taking part in the Horizon 2020, uh, you know, scientific work as well. So, yeah, there's no barrier, uh, I, I can see to uh, you know, science carrying on outside the EU. Let's just uh, end with a, a, a little bit about where a couple of public health issues. Um, so this week, the um, the government launched this uh, campaign called One You. It's aimed at uh, middle-aged people, and the idea is that you know if you make some changes in your life now, then you will you know will live longer, and you know that's got to be a good thing. And they've produced this somewhat patronising website um, about. Uh, you know, all these things about how you should stop smoking and cut down on your drinking and whatever. I mean, what, do, what do people think of that? Um, I, I actually think that public health have got a real problem on their hands. I mean, if ever anyone needed a PR agency, it's public health. Because this One You campaign um, has come out, and in many ways it's the content of it is something, you know, same old, same old, condescending, uh, interventionist, paternalistic, treats uh, adults as children, infantilising and so on. But actually, there's been a real reaction against it. So there's all these people who are actually broadly sympathetic to public health who've said, oh, God, this is embarrassing. How You know, it, 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 it's got no subtlety whatsoever. And I am enjoying the fact that occasionally these things blow up in their face. Sadly, however, public health won't, as a trend, be diminished by its inability to treat anybody as an adult because some of its deeper re- you know deeper uh, attitudes still are you know of they're they're far too embedded and internalized now but um the more however that its proponents indicate the contempt with which they treat ordinary people and it's a reminder that uh, condescension and contempt for ordinary people is not the preserve of the EU by any stretch of the imagination. We've got our homegrown zealots uh, preaching it here at home. But the more that they do that, the more that you, at least those of us who are more open-minded and libertarian in our attitude to individual autonomy, can at least sort of show, look, this is what they're really like. Yeah, well, the irony is, of course, is that public health will have multiple PR agencies, all of whom no doubt will be earning considerable sums of money to put together a, uh, these campaigns. And what's what's really striking, when you look at the kind of three big stories that you know, are, are around, which is around the European referendum, American politics and public health, you know, what really unites them is that people not being told what they're, or not doing what they're told to do, really, actually, that they have been... You know, so much money kind of invested in the hidden persuaders who have kind of got the the skills of political communication. You you'll have seen that on a huge scale around the American uh, uh, elections, where you know where there was you know eye watering kind of sort of sums thrown out. Will have been long kind of strategy discussions had, and then what actually happens is something unpredictable steps into the process, which is the public, which is democracy, which actually proves to be quite disruptive. All of these people who previously you know worked in in the corporate sphere and said we were able to you know seduce people into buying our products um, like this have now gone into um, political communication and charity and lobbying can say we can stop you from doing all of we can prevent all of these things um, from occurring with our own kind of special methods and actually you sort of see they're not actually as powerful as they as they seem to be it's a kind of emperor's new clothes I mean you've seen the kind of you know the Republicans have to wheel out Mitt Romney as a kind of you know 
political titan to try and get the kind of Republican voters back on board. Actually, for the first time since the rise of Reagan, probably, you'll see in an election where people might defect from one camp to another, that some Republicans might start voting Democrats and vice versa. Um, and that's what's really striking is that you, they will be so obsessed with engagement and trying to push forward these messages and then actually it doesn't sort of work and then everyone goes well what what the hell has happened here this doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever and you know that's really when it comes down to it why people are so keen to bypass the political process whenever they're trying to impose these big decisions whether it's europe whether it's the you know, presidential elections or whether it's a public health campaign where it's almost as if it doesn't really matter whether you want to follow this stuff or whether you want to improve your life or kind of take hold of your kind of health. There are sort of some agendas that have been set out, which people have decided they need to push and impose and kind of be damned about what your own opinion is. And that's a mechanism that will just keep on repeating itself and repeating itself um, until you know, it really gets politically challenged. That idea that you, you mentioned earlier about people as Lego bricks and as you're as objects to be to be moved around. Look, looking through this, a quiz on the One uh, U website, which is like this will give you health advice about what you should do with your life, blah blah blah, and all these different things. But rather than that, so they ask you how old you are and uh, you know what your sex is and all this sort of, sort of you know, basic demographic stuff. The next set of questions isn't you know do you smoke or whatever. The next set of questions is, how many people rely on you? It's like, is it your friends, your family, your children? So immediately getting that sort of moral guilt trip right in first... And then you can, then they can talk to you about smoking and drinking and uh, you know, and how much you sleep and all this sort of stuff. So it's it's just like you know, you're there to be manipulated in the in the following questions. And the other the other thing is the, the way they sort of very blatantly t- decide that they that they there are particular groups in society that need to be targeted. So along with all the usual billboard stuff or whatever, the other thing that they they were promoting was the fact that they're doing an advertising campaign on the nozzles in petrol stations. So it's like, what are you filling up with? You know, are you filling up with junk? And it's just like, yeah, we've got to get like the, you know, the, the van drivers and you know, all those kind of people, you know, the hard to reach because they're the kind of people who are going to want you know, to have a Cornish pasty and a fag on their break, that kind of thing. So, you know, it, it's, it's really, really explicit what, the, you know, what they're, they're after and who they're targeting with these things. The, the other thing that came up today, and I thought for a brief moment, I thought there was like some light in the darkness of this kind of campaigning, which is that the Court of Appeal decided that the smoking ban uh, in workplaces doesn't apply to prisons. So I had, you know, just seeing this headline, blithely assumed that some prisoners who wanted to smoke had sued the government for their right to smoke. It turns out it was a prisoner who wanted to get the ban implemented as soon as possible, rather than the government saying, we want to implement it at a time and on a timetable of our own choosing. But they're very much intent on banning smoking absolutely everywhere in prisons, even outside. Um, So... There is there is there is no point at which you can say, look, these people are incarcerated. They have absolutely no freedom whatsoever. We went, we didn't imprison them just to stop them smoking. So maybe we should allow them to have a fag in the yard, or maybe in a room in the prison, or anything like that. No, they, they're going to go for this total ban. And the only thing that they're worried about is the fact that the prisoners might take umbrage at this and start rioting. Well, I hope that they do. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I consider this to be a cruel and unjust punishment. I mean, you know, 
there is no need for it whatsoever. And uh, like you said, I'm disappointed that the uh, that the headlines didn't quite indicate a sort of big step forward, and that prisoners will be able to smoke. But I I do think that the um, there is a danger here that those people who run the prison service who actually initially I think there was certainly some resistance to the banning of c- cigarettes in prison because actually the the warders and, and the people who work there were sympathetic to the prisoners not having much else to do and smoking and it's just one of those things and and we all understand that but then suddenly I think they suddenly felt left out I mean they have to do their own virtue signalling you know um, we, we're prison warders and we don't want anyone to think that we're not like sensitive souls who worry about passive smoking in our working environment so they then join in and then say no no we've got to and so on and so forth and you just think oh god can't somebody use common sense in these matters and and I and I think that we, we might as well mention here not because there's a relationship between the two there's just some parallel moments that the other area that has caused some concern in relation to the Uncruel, the cruel and unjust punishment aspect of this is the banning of smoking in psychiatric hospitals and a lot of uh, long-term uh, uh, psychiatric um, patients um, often associated with their condition often associated with their, actually the kind of medication they take and as somebody who worked in the mental health uh, sector for a long time you know they chain smoke it's just one of those things that happens and if you have Uh, schizophrenia if you have uh, a chronic problem like manic depression one of the few relieves is smoking right the real big serious health problem in your life is that you can be psychotic that you've lost your mind it's a cruel and vicious illness depression like that the idea of these people in the name of health saying that you're not going to be able to smoke for your health uh, in a psychiatric hospital, just indicates what inhumane, heartless zealots some of these people are, and I really hope that we can do something to overturn any such bans. Yeah, I mean, I often feel the same when it's the um, policy announcements about trying to make sure that all of the kind of food in hospitals um, is healthy, that people are kind of very upset about having sort of so much junk food there, and you just think have. Has anyone just stopped to think about what it is you're trying to tackle? The people who are eating regularly in in hospitals are going to be there often, you know, for kind of traumatic reasons. It's not just the kind of sort of patients and about the kind of discussion about the food. The visitors are going to be there because they've got, you know, traumatic stuff going on in their lives. And the kind of idea that what you want to try and do is to stop, you know, those people having a burger or an unhealthy sandwich or a packet of crisps and to have them... You know, eat a salad instead and feel that you're making a real massive positive improvement to these people's lives it's kind of quite warped really I mean that's really what happens when you sort of set yourself as kind of an agenda like you have around health which is to improve people's health then that's just a kind of, sort of endless justification you can make of kind of improvement and success regardless of what the you know, reality of people's lives are it's a kind of very alienating approach to towards kind of policy and kind of engagement with society or kind of political institutions generally. Yeah, Claire, I'm very glad you mentioned that because I'm chairing a debate in Chelmsford on the 21st of March on this on the very topic of uh, smoking in um, psychiatric units. 
Um, so if, if you happen to be in the Chelmsford area, um, it's at the Woolpack uh, in the evening. Um, so do please come along. Um, uh, I think we're far past our normal bedtime. So uh, <laughs> we, would, we would also like to note we're encouraging the salons associated with the Institute of Ideas to hold a, a series of EU-related debates, panel discussions, uh, to give some of this informed uh, discussion a sort of wider hearing. I, I believe you're speaking at one in Birmingham, Rob, forthcoming. There's one in Manchester, I think, that we hope will happen on, on the 24th of March. There's definitely one that we're organising um, for students, uh, for, for particularly, but open to anyone, on the 17th, 17th of May yeah. at Goodenough College, and we will be advertising these. And we're also going to bring out a resource pack of kind of um, recommended readings, some of our previous podcasts and films and so on, for people to really get up to speed with all the arguments. So watch this space. Okay, and on that happy note, uh, thank you, Claire and David. Um, thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you'd like to find out more about our podcasts and subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>